even entrepreneurs fail and, and researchers and innovators fail again and again, even though they are in that process of constantly facing the feedback from the markets, from the, the pricing systems, from, from funders and so on. Why would it be that a few guys at the top who don't even risk their own money would have superior knowledge than those millions constantly experimenting? Hello and welcome to the IEA's YouTube channel. Today I'm joined by Johan Norberg, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and of course a prolific author. Johan was one of my heroes when I was an undergraduate student because this was a time when um, we're talking about the early to mid 2000s. So this was a time when the anti-globalization movement was extremely in vogue. So these guys were everywhere, even at the economics department where I was, you couldn't get away from them. And um, my problem at the time was that I had lots of arguments with these people and their sympathizers. And uh, I knew that their economics, uh, the economics of anti-globalization, uh, that that was all wrong, but I couldn't always explain it well. Uh, certainly not in ways which might have appealed to a left-wing student, which was, well, basically all of them. Uh, but then your book came along, In Defense of Global Capitalism, and that just did the job perfectly. I think I even uh, I lent it to several left-wing friends at the time, and I think you've converted some, some people in that way. Delighted um, to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. And it was, uh, I don't know if you know if you know this, but the German translation, the one that I read at the time, was actually called, they didn't use the original title, uh, they called it Das Kapitalistische Manifest, uh, the Capitalist Manifesto, which is now uh, the title of this book here. So I don't know uh, if there is a German translation plan, I don't know what they're going to call it. But we're going to talk yeah. about this book today. This is, in a sense, this is a back to the beginning, you could say. Not quite a sequel, but you're picking up the themes uh, from the original book. Uh, what inspired you to, to do that? Why, uh, what's, the, what's the story behind this book? Well, the story is that we kind of lost the debate about <laughs> capitalism after having won it. Yes. So the opponents, they weren't converted. They kind of agreed that some of the proposals might have been wrong, or at least they weren't as enthusiastic about it after the, the last debates. But then they moved on to new topics yeah. and new uh, events and new problems and saying that, but this shows us that why capitalism is bad. So once upon a time it was, it would destroy poor countries and create inequalities and increase poverty. Well, now we know that it was the, the opposite. We've seen the biggest poverty reduction the world has ever seen. But then they move on and say, okay, that might be true, but what about global warming? What about new forms of inequality within our societies? What about deindustrialization? So they constantly move on. And yeah. that's why we also have to move on and, and apply basic economic and market principles on current debates. Yeah, that's usually the problem with uh, left-wing movements that they are very much in fashion for a while. In this case, this was maybe a decade or so, late 90s uh, to... to uh, the, yeah, the end of the first decade of, of this century. Um, but when it's clear that they have been proven wrong, which in this case is just overwhelmingly clear. I remember at the time it was the conventional wisdom that 
globalization is making rich countries richer, poor countries poorer. And as you say, and as, as you sh uh, show in the book, and showed in the first book already, uh, this was a time when global poverty was falling like never before. So this yeah. wasn't a case like where somebody is maybe overshooting a bit or where the truth is maybe a bit more complicated. No, it was unambiguously completely wrong, everything yeah. that they said at the time. But there was no moment of, of reckoning. Um, why do you think that is? Why, why are we so bad at holding our opponents to account? Basically? Yeah, that's strange how we just pocket the old uh, victories and move on to the next problems. And I think it's partly because of human nature. I mean, Mother Nature is a, uh, an economist and problem solved are problems forgotten. Yeah. So if capitalism suddenly reduces extreme poverty around the world from in the past 200 years above 80% to less than 8% today, it's the most astonishing thing that has ever happened to mankind. Mm. But we just say, oh yeah, yeah, it did that. But what about? And then mm. they move on to the next thing. Partly because human nature, we are problem solvers. But to be problem solvers, we have to look for problems and constantly look for the next problems. The tragedy, though, is that the anti-capitalists, they never stop and look at how these problems were solved, not top-down, not command and control, but through the experiments and the innovations and the business models of millions of people experimenting. And because that would give them a clue as to how to solve the next problem. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of understandable that somebody uh, 20 years back, so this was before our world and data existed, or the, um, the Hans Rosling uh, data gathering project, at the time, okay, I, I can see how you would see a lot of cheap trainers in the stores and you might think, well, clearly we are exploiting the third world. You don't have access to, uh, to all the facts. But you would think uh, nowadays with all the, the access to information that we have, it should be, at least some people should think, well, why did I get this so wrong <laughs> at the time? But you would hope. Um... On the other hand, it might also suggest that some of them aren't in it for problem solving. Yeah. Some of them just want to smash capitalism. <laughs> and I so think pretty much all of them. <laughs> I, I think at least to some of them, it's a basic anxiety and uncomf they're uncomfortable with people becoming rich out of starting businesses, taking risks and, and innovating. They dislike that kind of society, think associates it with materialism and greed and things yeah. they're not, not happy with. So they're not really interested in seeing the, the, the net positive of, of this whole system. So they will keep on moving to the next thing. You know, once upon a time, it would be our, our part of the world would be undermined and the, the middle class would become proletarians and the proletarians would starve. Well, we created the richest civilization in history and then they move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's because we exploit poor countries and Asia. But now we've seen the rise of Asia and this poverty reduction. And then people say, yes, that's the problem because too many people are getting rich and that will hurt the planet and the environment. So right. they will always find something. Yeah. One of the differences I've noticed between um, in defense of global capitalism and this one is that last time, and in some of your other writings, uh, your main target used to be the anti-capitalist left, 
Whereas in this case, it's quite evenly balanced. It's also about what you could call communitarian conservatives or national conservatives. So basically right-wing anti-capitalists. It's about 50-50 in this book. Is that yeah. fair to say? I think it is. And it's not because I've changed between these two books. It's because part of the right has shifted to a more populist, nationalist, anti-capitalist stance. It was very surprising to me when I, uh, I had a book forum, when I published the book at Cato, and we invited an opponent who gave us all the same kind of leftist arguments that it just enriches a few rich people and big business, but it hurts the poor and we'll get deindustrialization. So now we need tariffs, we need active industrial policy, we need more generous welfare policies and a higher minimum wage and so on. And this wasn't a guy from the left. It was a guy from the right, from the think tank, nationalist conservative think tank, American Compass. And it tells you something that um, I think partly it's because of accidents. I mean, Donald Trump broke the party and it had to be filled with something and some want to fill it with leftist bromides and, and, and nationalism. But also I think it's because of this change in the world. The fact that 20 years ago people fear that Capitalism, big business, it will make us rich, but it will make somebody else poor in the third world. Now we've seen the rise of the third world. And then some people are still not convinced because they still think that the world is a zero-sum game and that economics is zero-sum. So if they so obviously benefit and if poverty is being reduced so fast, it's probably us who are losing out here in the... Um, in Europe and in America. So it has created a new anti-capitalist, anti-globalist narrative. But this time around, it's because um, the poor get richer and that might hurt us in rich countries. Yeah, it's a complete reversal of the old story from the early 2000s where the story was, we are exploiting the third world. Yeah. Uh, we let them uh, do the dirty business and we benefit from it, enrich ourselves. And now it's they're stealing our jobs. It's uh, Maybe for that reason, it lends itself more to a right-wing, Trumpian, populist yeah. kind of narrative. Um, and that's why we see, well, on both left and the right, um, a kind of romanticism about the post-war decades, 1950s, 1960s. You address that uh, in chapter three here, uh, with, some, with some differences in emphasis. Um, on the left, it would be more, they would see that as a period when the capitalist class was under threat and was forced to make some concessions to the working class. Um, the right would have, a, would have a different version of it. They would say it's, it's because uh, we kept our manufacturing jobs at the time, we protected them, and now um, we've outsourced all of that to China and now everyone is a delivery driver or working at a call center. But you're not convinced by this uh, 1950s romanticism. Right, yeah. no, I'm not because we're all nostalgics. That's also part of human nature. I happen to know for a fact that the best music objectively was done in the 1980s. It was Depeche Mode, The Cure and The Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> and everything since then is incomprehensible to me. And that's the case for us all. When I, whenever I ask people, if you believe in the good old days, when were the good old days? And by accident, it almost always is in when people were teenagers on the, or the early 20s. Because then the world is exciting and yet safe, and you don't have kids yet, soon you'll get kids, and you have to think about everything that goes wrong in, can go wrong in the world. And you start paying the bills, and you, you, you're not as excited anymore, perhaps. And I think this is why we need something else than just going by our 
gut feeling that the 50s were great and the golden era. We need to talk to those who actually experienced that era and we need to talk to historians who look at that era and the diaries of people living back then because it so often this industrial nostalgia goes back to America and Detroit and the automotive jobs. That's the kind of life that we, we got in the post-war era and it was really what we should be going back to. Safe, unionized jobs at a high pay. But you know, when historians talk to people who actually experienced it, they say that it was dirty work, it was difficult job, long hours, you often lost an arm to a machine if you weren't careful, and many of them had to take a second job to pay their bills, even in, in that industry. And almost all of them said that we do this, and we did this to make sure that our kids would not have to work in these kinds of jobs in the future. Um, and those were the best jobs. They're still remembered as the best jobs back then because compared to everything else in agriculture and, and the year of the Great Depression and, and, and the Second World War, of course this was much better. But what is it like compared to now? Well, I looked at the, the best jobs in Detroit in 1953. Heavily unionized, so high wages compared to everybody else, so high that they weren't competitive compared to other American businesses in, in a, a few years later on. Um, but how much did they make? Well, around one and a half cents in, in, that, uh, in dollars back then, adjusted for inflation. That's slightly below the entry-level wage at an Amazon warehouse today. So we have to keep things into perspective. Nobody would want such a job today. And that's the reason why, even though we've had this uh, deindustrialization in terms of jobs, um, it's difficult for factories to get people to stay on those jobs because it's still difficult and, uh, and it's still ha quite harsh compared to many others. Mm. And there's also the economic theory um, is quite clear on this. Uh, there is a reason why... Even if we lose some jobs in manufacturing due to cheaper imports, that's not yeah. a bad thing. That creates new jobs. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? That's an incredibly important point because this is, there is this sense that we need to go back to those factories. Well, we keep on doing that. In America, uh, factories are producing almost at an all-time high in the value produced. It's just that they don't need as many workers uh, as they did before. And that's how we stay competitive. That's how we make sure that we can produce more things with fewer people and make it possible for us to climb the value ladder, to move on to other jobs, which are more capital intensive, which are more education intensive. We move on to research and development and into engineering, and we move on to marketing and design and uh, buying and selling rather than, than standing in the factories. And, uh, and this is why, I mean, some of these industrial subsidies and some of these tariffs might bring back some factories from other places, but it won't bring back many manufacturing jobs because it's not thousands of, of men with wrenches and, and hammers anymore. It's, it's a few guys with computers and the rest is automated. And that's what we need to, uh, to have to be able to compete with China and Korea and other places that keep on moving up the value ladder by automating their manufacturing jobs. Everybody does this. Every successful society deindustrializes in in terms of 
people in factories. That's what successful exporters like Germany and uh, Japan did in the 70s and 80s. So it's not an anomaly. That's yeah. what we do to move on. And it's that process also which makes these industrial goods cheaper, which means they occupy a smaller space within our budgets, which frees up space for other things. So I remember looking at some of the consumer surveys from here, from the 1950s, where things like tourism, dining out, they're not even included yet, because that was so trivial a fraction that it was just subsumed on the other, uh, because the basics occupied such a large proportion of most yeah. people's budgets that... It would have been impossible with the purchasing power and uh, productivity of the 50s to sustain a tourism industry. You could maybe do that if you're somewhere, a coastal town in Italy, say, where yeah. you have all the, the benefits of a nice climate uh, and everything, and you can attract tourists from all over Europe. But the idea that a region within Britain could live off tourism, uh, that's something which uh, only then came in, in later decades. Yeah. But that that's, you need a richer society. That's a great and a very important point. As long as most people worked in agriculture, we couldn't afford the food, basically. It was only with higher agricultural productivity that that was reduced in price. And we could move on to buying manufactured goods. And suddenly we could have more than one change of clothes in our homes and, and furniture and, and stuff like that. And then that was reduced in price and gave us home electronics. And, and then that's reduced in price. And then we move on to tourism and higher education and more uh, better health care and so on. That's the only thing that will give us a static economy where we have the same number of people producing the same number of things. That's a stagnant economy where we never move on and we can never attain any kind of, of um, higher prosperity. Yeah, You've also got a chapter... Uh somewhat provocatively titled In Defense of the 1%. Uh, that is, even on our side, some people would be a bit squeamish uh, and would say, well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm against the 1% too, because a lot of them are crony capitalists. Yeah. But you don't think it's all negative. Uh, there's no shame in saying, no, actually, nothing wrong with the 1%. Well, I'm sure there are some who made their money in a nasty way, and often by um, making... Um, politicians and bureaucrats happy rather than consumers. Um, but that's exactly what we get when we have more industrial policy and, and tariffs. So I want to uh, beat the drum for people who actually make a fortune on the market. Uh, because it's so easy to just look at it now and look at the successful people. Why should they have all those resources? Well, you have to think about how did they get there. And think about all those who didn't get there, because it's risky and dangerous to come up with new business models and with new technologies and goods and services. Most of them fail, most of, of these goods. So it's dangerous, it's risky. As one entrepreneur some once put it to me, it's like a minefield. Uh, over there, you've got all the things that make us, uh, us prosper. New capabilities, technologies, goods and services, fortunes. But it's difficult to get there because there is a minefield in between, a minefield of economic uncertainty and customers who change their minds and uh, regulations and interest rates and stuff. So most never find a way over to the other side. Most entrepreneurs are, are blown up, but some do. And uh, the chance that someone finds a safe path to the other side increases if we get more people to take those risks and yeah. make those crazy ventures. And the best way of doing that is to attach an incredible reward over there on the other side. And yeah, they 
hopefully make something if they succeed despite all these problems. But the most important thing for us, for humanity, is that we found a safe path and suddenly we can sit here and with affordable food and with decent uh, medicines and with uh, electronics that makes it possible for us to see the other half of the planet in real time on our cell phones. And that's what's important. So the 1%, if they get there, if they did it on the market, with voluntary exchanges uh, where no deal ever happens unless both parties think that they actually benefit from it, then the greater their reward, the bigger our reward, the consumers and the rest of society. And I would say that we make much more than they do because we didn't take those risks. Yeah. They did. Yeah, well, that's always been the uh, something that anti-capitalists don't quite see that uh, for every example of success there are many failures. I had that exact uh, conversation once with a Marxist in a hipster pub, you could say. It was doing very well and, and he said to me, look, there's surely tens of thousands of pounds coming in. Who makes all that? Who creates all that wealth? That's uh, the people standing behind the bar and pulling the pints and uh, the owner is just sitting there and uh, getting fat and rich and doing nothing. Right. And, I, and I said to him, yeah, okay, but this place here, um, this is in what used to be an industrial wasteland. Somebody took that risk and uh, somebody had the idea, why not put a pub here? And truly there are many other examples of places which started in a similar way, but never got off the ground, never got anywhere. So you're looking at the, uh, the successful example, uh, that, that would be like saying, um, okay, I'm interviewing people who won the lottery, and uh, they will then say, well, and, and then I'll conclude, yeah, playing the lottery makes you rich. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. And I think it's so important to explain to people that profits, if an entrepreneur makes a profit, it's because they've enriched so many people on the way and they actually stand last in line because first they have to invest in that pub. They have to take up a loan probably to do it and pay the loans. They have to buy the supplies and pay the suppliers. They have to hire people, someone standing there at the bar who apparently expects to be paid even yeah. though the pub might never actually make a profit. So. Then, and only then, if they paid up the suppliers and those who lent them money and the, the rent for the building and paying the workers, only then, and, and also getting, giving something to customers who make them come back again and again because they, they benefit from it, only if they manage to enrich all these groups and get something left, which is obviously heavily taxed, do they get a profit. So actually, if they make it in this way on the market through voluntary exchange, it's because they are the benef they benefit mankind. Yeah, and fair play to them. But there are, of course, people who make money in ways that we wouldn't approve of. Uh, so I'm glad that you mention in the book uh, one of my hobby horses, which is NIMBYism, mm. uh, people preventing housing construction and then getting rich. Uh, because the housing wealth explodes, a big problem in Britain. I don't know about the Swedish situation. Oh, yeah. Um, we do have that. Yeah, but that, that is something that, I mean, back then, uh, when your first book came out, um, I wasn't even aware of it. I, th I thought, well, housing, well, houses are just somehow there. We don't really yeah. have to think about it. But now we know it's become a bigger deal in some developed countries. Um, can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that, the impact of yeah. restricting housing construction? Yeah, no, it's it's really terrible because one of the problems that we've seen over the past 
two decades or, or so is that, uh, and this is something that everybody picks up on, is that, yeah, we don't see this general, re- general distribution of all the wealth that is being created, of all these opportunities. Well, one of the biggest reasons is that we have a lack of mobility. It used to be that we moved to places where the jobs are and where they pay better, where the market is. But now it's incredibly difficult to do that because in those places we have uh, nimbuism, we have regulated housing, which makes it unaffordable to move to the places where we should be moving to get a stake in this growing dynamic economy. And that's, as you say, it's uh, partly this this alliance between regulators and people who live there and who don't want to see their their housing prices affected. and that's a major problem. That's why we need deregulation, fierce deregulation in this area to make sure that we spread the wealth. Yeah, I mean, even in Piketty, uh, who you also critique in one of the chapters, uh, I think he even had a graph in, in his book where he showed um, increases in wealth concentration. And actually, at least for, for, for the British data, almost all of it was just explained by housing wealth. So no, you don't need yeah. a grand new theory about capitalism. That's no right. R greater than G, nothing of, of, of that sort. Yeah. Uh, just build some houses. And you know, there's no great mystery here. <laughs> exactly. Let's have a look at uh, industrial policy. Uh, that's also, that was less of a thing 20 years ago. It's made a comeback. Yeah. I'd say largely uh, Mariana Matsukato's uh, Achievement. Yeah. I mean, she must have done something right. Uh, used to follow her on Twitter for a while, and uh, I don't know if that's if that's still the case. But for a while, she used to post almost every day. Um, today, I'm meeting the Brazilian finance minister. Today, I'm meeting the Austrian minister of economics. So she was a rock star economist yeah. for uh, because of this one idea that it's actually the entrepreneurial state that creates most of the wealth, and the private sector is just a parasite. That well, okay, she doesn't quite put it like that, but she would say uh, successful innovation. She would probably say that a lot of the technology that we're using today uh, goes back to state-funded research in one way or another. So is the state really a wealth creator, a wealth engine? Does the private sector just um, commercialize it without contributing? Yeah. Well, you know, I I think that Matsukato is an important reason why we've seen this revival of uh, industrial policy. But it's also amnesia. It's the fact that we forgot uh, how what happened the last time we tried to do this in the 70s and 80s we had plenty of uh, massive ambitions to to pick winners from from the governments uh, from governments all around the world and it was a complete series of failures it ended in tears uh, for the simple reason I would say that and this goes back to the thing that wealth creation is hard it's difficult It's difficult to come up with useful knowledge and useful products and goods and services. And when I look at almost all the inventions that we now appreciate and love dearly, none of them came from a political committee sort of designing this is what we need, nor did they come from a single genius who just came up with the idea. It came from thousands of experiments. It came from trial and error. It came from lots of feedback from users and consumers and lots of pushbacks and and failures and then adaptation and incremental progress and then after years we suddenly end up with something that's actually useful and if you don't understand that if you think that the it's easy to start a successful company you 
then it's easy to say that let's just have the government push the button a little bit more and create more useful products and innovations because that will that'll be great. But that's not what happened. That's not what we got when we, we had industrial policy the last time around. We got old uh, rusty shipyards and we got uh, Francis Minitel and we got Concorde, the supersonic flight. We, we got Quero, which everybody, or at least the French and the German government, thought that we all would be using instead of Google now right, yeah. to, to find uh, good, better search results, because they just knew that this was the future of the digital, digital world, but it all ended in tears. And that's fine, because lots of experiments ends in failure. But the problem with having this active industrial policy is that we remove the whole process whereby we sort out the failures and constantly learn throughout this process and make sure that we have a more incremental process and capital and labor is transferred to places that are more successful and more successful solutions. So I'm afraid this will short circuit the whole yeah. process. Well, and often uh, when you have industrial policy, uh, politicians follow a different set of incentives. In the best case, they probably just go with what seems to be working already, what's already mm -hmm. in fashion. So I remember the former Chancellor George Osborne always had some industrial policy gimmick in every budget speech that he gave. But it was always uh, flashy things uh, like the video games industry. Yeah. That was fashionable at the time, of course. So mm -hmm. he said, well, I have a special tax break here for the video games industry. Maybe it didn't, probably didn't do much harm, but if they were already doing well, then we could say, well, what's the point of that? That's right. And that's why it's not enough with... Um flashy presentations and, and um, lectures about sort of the successful examples of uh, industrial policy. Because obviously if you spend lots of resources, the government is involved in almost everything. And if something succeeds, they'll point to it. Matsukato will say, this is a success because it could only happen because of the government. You know, when I learned a couple of years ago that 49 out of 50 American states spent heavily to make their state a hub for bio, the biotech industry and attract businesses from other states. And if only one of them succeeds in their ambition, Matsukato and others will say, oh, you see, it works, it really functions. That's why we need research. We need researchers to look at all the other examples and what happened to them, all the, the other 48 states that didn't succeed. And then uh, researchers tell me, and they recently, some 50 European scholars uh, used their knowledge to produce an anthology called The Myth of the Entrepreneurial State. That's not really the title, but it's something like that, and you can Google it. Um, and they basically say, yes, for, there are successful examples, but for each of them there are 100 failures. And we short-circuit this process and we don't end up in a good place. Yeah, I once read something about uh, where several entrepreneurs from Eastern Germany talked about how they couldn't have made it without government support. And But then I thought, well, okay, this is from a time when the East, all of the Eastern states were showered with subsidy money. It would be strange if, of course, if you subsidize everything, something is going to succeed eventually. If, yeah. you, if you look at a heavily subsidized region where everything is subsidized in some way, of course, there will be some winners, but you have to ask, hey, what's the opportunity cost? Exactly. Uh, some, what would have happened with those resources if they hadn't been spent in that way? Yeah. And then the only argument would be that for some reason, a small group of politicians and administrators would have 
better, superior knowledge about the future of technology and the business world than the millions and millions of people who are actually in that world. And even they don't know. Even entrepreneurs fail and, and researchers and innovators fail again and again, even though they are in that process of constantly facing the feedback from the markets, from the, the pricing systems, from, from funders and so on. Why would it be that a few guys at the top who don't even risk their own money would have superior knowledge than those millions constantly experimenting? I haven't seen anything in our political establishment that has sort of recently <laughs> proven their superior knowledge about these things. No, but yeah, it's always it's only when you make that assumption that industrial policy can make sense. Because if it's so obvious that something is the key industry of the future, well then surely it should be super easy for them to attract financial support. Exactly. And uh, I mean... This is why the Brazilian Minister of Finance is so um, happy about Matsukata's arguments and they all want to meet her because she's basically saying that you know best, you know better than all these, these people on markets. But then we should ask them, so why don't you mortgage your summer home in that yeah. industry before, if you know that this is the future, at least do that before you take the taxpayers' money. Yeah, well, if you have all this knowledge, why aren't you a millionaire? Okay. In chapter five, you talk about big tech. Uh, that goes back to what I said earlier, that in this book, uh, you take roughly equally issue with the anti-capitalist left, but also the anti-liberal right. Uh, this case, In this case, the, the obsession with how big tech is the enemy. That's something that's more common on the conservative right. Also that, well, it might change now uh, with Elon Musk's yeah. takeover of Twitter, but at least so far, that's mostly been a conservative right-wing thing. Um, but don't they have a point in that there are network effects in some of the big tech industries? So you could set up a competitor to Twitter, you could call it Norberg Social. It's yeah. just that um, even if, say, technologically your version is better, well, everyone I want to follow is on Twitter. So yeah. do I really have a choice? Yeah. No, there are network effects. I, I uh, agree. Norberg Twitter isn't a great success so far. Um, but if there are network effects, they should be exploited for the best of the consumers and for the users. Uh, if we broke up all social media into tiny bits and pieces uh, all over the place, that wouldn't be much use for us. The point is that we want to get in yeah. touch with people. So it's a good thing that they're exploited. The question is, are they exploited to the extent that it's impossible to compete with them and start something new and, and better in the future? And, and then I just did the, um, to me, very amusing thing of looking at what social media looked like 20 years ago when I wrote my last book on global capitalism. Because back then it was, newspapers wrote about it will be impossible to break this natural monopoly in social media, this big social platform, MySpace, because they have all these users and they're so heavily invested. They will never switch to, to an alternative. And, and obviously the great cell phone king would, would dominate forever, which was Nokia at the time. So it, we proved through... Uh, all these uh, Facebook and the iPhone and uh, Google, which now seem like monopoly uh, powers, that they were new entrants into these markets and, and broke. Yeah, know. I think that that was a Guardian article about MySpace, how they will dominate forever. And Guardian mm. articles usually age hilariously badly. <laughs> uh, pretty much any old edition of the Guardian from uh, 20 years ago, or even less, uh, you would think, well, it's obvious it didn't happen. 
That's um, right. But yeah, that's just the nature of, of, uh, of that game. Yeah. Um, and, but, and there is a case, I would say, that yes, if we already have Twitter, it's more difficult. There's a, an innovation shadow in a way. It's, it doesn't really make sense to invest heavily in coming up with a competitor to Twitter or to Facebook and do exactly what they do. But that might even be a good thing, because would we want another Twitter? Isn't one bad enough? Uh, do we want another Facebook? Perhaps it's good that money is channeled into more um, really radical innovation that might be disruptive, that more money has gone into AI platforms, for example, something that could really threaten these old social media platforms. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is kind of already happening. Uh, I guess when you do a, a revised edition of this in a couple of years, uh, the passages about Facebook will probably sound quaint already. Yeah. Uh, a colleague told me the other day that his teenage daughters uh, don't want to use Facebook because they see it as an old people's platform, yeah. uh, which um, sounded a bit jarring. I mean, I'm not an active Facebook user, but I still used to think of it as a amazing technology. You can see what people that you maybe haven't seen since high school, uh, what they're up to now, but there's a generational effect. And in that way, I yeah. guess you can break up the, even if the network effect is there, you just have a whole cohort at once looking for something else. And in that way, um, yeah, Facebook will probably find out uh, yeah. market power positions. That's a great say. point. And even when I wrote the book, people said that no social media platform can ever attain the the size of Facebook, but while I was writing it, TikTok did. So it's happening again and again. One of the things uh, that, I mean, on the whole, uh, your first book on globalization, I'd say, aged terrifically well, certainly better than all the anti-capitalist uh, books. Better, better than the Guardian were, pieces. Well, well, and better than Naomi Klein's stuff. Yeah. Uh, one thing where the and the, the pro-globalization side was probably wrong, and, and you admit this in the book, is that we thought at the time, well, if we integrate China into the global economy, they will become more or less like a Western liberal democracy. Uh, that clearly didn't happen. Were we too naive at the time, or could it have happened? What went wrong there? It's certainly a disappointment, and I was wrong. I thought by this stage China would have had much more of the experiments that were going on 20 years ago in opening up the public sphere to more debate and the freer media, and even at the local level, some experiments with local democracy, because as not because the Communist Party was in favor of, of openness and democracy, but because they knew that what doesn't bend might break at some point. Um, so I was hoping that that would move on and we'd see the same process that has happened in other countries that moved on to sort of a large middle class and with more access to information and, and so on. That clearly didn't happen. But I think it's important to think about hard about why it didn't happen. Why did we see this terrible backlash and authoritarian revival after 2010 and especially under Xi Jinping's rule? When, when you look at why they chose to do what they did and how they argued, they actually used the same kind of uh, words and phrases that we did when we hoped for this future. They were saying that this economic opening up is dangerous, it's risky, because it's unleashed lots of forces that we cannot control. 
people demand more, we get more independent wealth and uh, independent eccentric entrepreneurs and they begin to speak their minds, they're not dependent on the party anymore and they set up their own media uh, businesses. We risk, they, they understood that this is a risk to the party. Unfortunately, they uh, then chose not to go with that flow but instead to turn to harsh repression against this thing and trying to stand a thought history and, and, and yell stop basically at, at these forces. Uh, I think there could have been something else. There was, were lots of debates before Xi Jinping within the Communist Party. It's not a sort of a set, uh, it's not one consensus over there, but actually they fought it out uh, heavily. Uh, the question is, will this last? Is this the future of China? I for one think it's a very unstable um, uh, place that they've, where they've ended up. A place where they are trying to dismantle and control all the forces that they need as an engine for prosperity and for a dynamic, dynamic society that continues to uh, deliver the goods for, for people. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we are seeing an economy that doesn't function as... Uh, one researcher said about AI, they should have won the AI battle because they've invested so so heavily, but why not? Because their work is twice as difficult. They have to tell the AI both what to say and what not to say. It's not an open market for ideas, but it's not an mar open market for businesses and for entrepreneurs. They've destroyed the tech entrepreneurs and the uh, online education industry and the things that could have been new engines because they were afraid of that independence. And that won't work well in a society that's basically, they're finished with catch-up growth. They yeah. need their growth to come from more unpredictable places, from experiments and from surprises. And that's the one thing that, that Xi Jinping doesn't like. So that logic that increased economic freedom would also lead to demands for political freedom was not completely wrong. It's just that the Communist Party of China also sees it that way and therefore clamps down on both. I think that's what happened and uh, I think this is a, uh, a difficult choice that many authoritarian leaders have, uh, have made at one point or another. They can see forces emerging that they cannot control. Do they try to put the lid on it <laughs> even though it's boiling? You know, I, I think that it's much less stable than we expect and one thing that really drove this point home to me was the COVID protests. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we think it's all silent and quiet because repression is so harsh. But the moment a few students just appeared on the streets and attacked Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy, hundreds of cities saw these pro uh, protests instantly. And the party was so afraid of it that they did what they said could never be done, just abolishing that policy almost overnight. Mm -hmm. So it tells you that they're not sure that they've made the right decision, I don't think. Right. I'm afraid that's all we got time for. Um, I guess in 2043 or so you will have a third book on global capitalism out and maybe we will still be sitting here and talking about why we're still not winning. Um, I'm sure we will. The opponents will have moved on. Oh, yeah, so that, we'll... There will be some other uh, fashionable movement in town by then. We'll have to go to where the sinners are. <laughs> thank you very much for coming and thank you for watching. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button.